you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and as you turn there, there, you'll likely notice that John 4 is not a typical Easter Sunday passage. Uh, but I think that we will see in this story how um, the life and the ministry of Jesus speak to many of the themes of this day and our celebration of the resurrected Christ. We've had one week off, so let me remind you that John has written his gospel so that we would believe in Jesus and find life in his name. But an underlying question within that purpose of believing in Jesus and finding life in his name is this, what does it mean to believe? What is true saving faith? John has and John will continue to show us examples of individuals who are said to believe. And yet what exactly John means when he says that people believe tends to to vary. As we ask what it means to believe in Jesus, we might also ask, Is there, in fact, a way to believe that is not really belief? Or maybe if we could set aside the call to childlike faith for a moment, another question, maybe a better question could be, is faith something that grows the way that an infant matures into a child and then a child into a teenager and a teenager into an adult? With that in mind, here on Easter Sunday, we might think about the disciples after the resurrection and how their belief seemed to slowly grow over time. The gospel accounts communicate that they were devastated after the crucifixion and confused after the resurrection. They had trouble taking in what the, taking, uh, the women who witnessed the empty tomb at their word. It, in what Joshua read earlier, it says that they did not believe You remember Thomas. Thomas said that he would not believe the resurrection until he saw the scars in the hands of the resurrected Jesus. And Mark ends his gospel gazing at a group of fearful disciples. Now, the disciples all eventually came to the place of true belief, but they traveled a winding path of growing belief to get there. Here at the end of John 4, we're given the story of a man whose faith grew and matured in a similar way. We find that he sought out Jesus for one particular reason, but eventually came to see that Jesus could not only give him what he was initially seeking, but could also save him and his whole household, not just from physical death, but from eternal death. We see this man's faith journey over the course of two days, but he encourages all of us with the fact that our faith does not need to be fully formed at its beginning. In the same way we don't expect an infant to walk or a toddler to balance a checkbook or a teenager to never make any mistakes, we know that people grow and faith grows. This man's story invites us to have patience and sympathy, sympathy for ourselves, but also for others when our faith is small and when it is failing. However, this story also makes it clear that we should not be content to remain weak or immature in our faith. We will see that Jesus is not satisfied satisfied for us to have some sort of surface level belief any more than we would be content for a child to never take steps towards maturity and independence. Jesus challenges us to increase our faith. And this passage says this to us, allow the works and words of Jesus 
to mature your faith. Allow the works and the words of Jesus to mature your faith. Maybe you're here today and you're a a skeptic. You would say that your faith doesn't need to mature because it doesn't exist. My hope would be that the works and the words of Jesus would awaken you, would bring life to your dead faith and set you on a path of seeking the life that only he can give. Maybe you're the opposite of a skeptic. You feel like your faith is solid and it is secure. Then today, may may God's word affirm you and give you one more opportunity to take Jesus at his word and give yourself up to him in trust and devotion. But maybe, maybe you're struggling to trust Christ. You believe, but your unbelief feels like it's always sort of whispering in your ear. I pray that you would find Jesus meeting you in the struggle to trust. As with this man, Jesus cares enough to meet us wherever we are at on the journey. He doesn't cast us aside because of the weakness of our faith. But he also cares too much to leave us there. So whether you're a skeptic or you're solid or you're struggling, God's word invites us all to allow the works and the words of Jesus to mature our faith. Let's hear God's word then from John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43 through to the end of the chapter. This is what the scriptures say. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Allow the works and words of Jesus to mature our faith. I want us to think about the stages of faith and belief that are represented in this story with this man. But we first need to think about some context, especially the, what's presented to us in verses 43 to 46, as well as the previous chapters. So if you're taking notes, you can just call this context, and we're going to look at verses 43 through the first part of verse 46. Uh, you may remember that this story is part of a smaller section within John's gospel that begins with the first sign that John records, namely the turning of the water into wine back at the beginning of chapter 2. And then that, this section ends with this account here of Jesus's second sign, which also occurred in Cana. There's that Cana bookend that happens here. In both stories, there's a hint of rebuke 
Uh, and in both, there's a small group of people who respond believing in Jesus. I think there's other parallels. I'll invite you to look at the, the two sign stories and maybe see how, how there are these, these parallels between them. But in verse 43, it, it begins with the words, after two days, which reminds us that we were just in Samaria, where Jesus not only spoke with the woman at the well, but where he spent 48 hours talking with people in the nearby town such that many there believed. But now he was coming out of Samaria and back into Galilee, back into an area filled with not Samaritans, but with the Jewish people, and specifically Jewish people who were familiar with him. As he enters Galilee, John reminds us of the proverb that Jesus had often said, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It's this idea that no matter, no matter how big you might get or how many things you might accomplish, when you come home, you're surrounded by a bunch of people who knew you way back when, and they're just kind of naturally skeptical that you've changed it all. It's why we have phrases like, well, he's forgotten where he came from, or don't get above your raising, or different things like that. The people who knew you and me back when struggled to think of us in any other way than who we used to be. In other Gospels, uh, this is said specifically in reference to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. But here, it's focused on all of Galilee, with a possible focus, as D.A. Carson says it, on Jewish soil over against Samaritan soil. Again, remember, he has just come from Samaria, a place despised by the Jewish people, and yet it was a place where he was received and welcomed. He experienced their hospitality during a two-day visit there, a two-day revival, some people call it, and many people believed in him at first because of the woman's testimony, but then because of the words that Jesus himself spoke to them. However, the, the, that spirit of welcome and belief is not what he finds among his people in his hometown province, because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But wait a minute, in verse 45, it says that the Galileans welcomed him. So which is it? Does, does Jesus not receive honor, or is he welcomed? I think to understand that, maybe the deeper question is, why were they welcoming him? Why, why were the people in Galilee welcoming him? Well, John says it was because they had been at the feast in Jerusalem, spoken of at the end of John chapter 2, and they had seen all the signs that he had done there, signs that were in addition to the turning of the water into wine. And now he's returning to that place of the first sign. So they welcome him, but why? They welcome him as a miracle worker and a sign performer. This, this was nothing new. We read this in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I think John is inviting our minds to go back to those verses when he tells us in chapter 4, verse 40, 45, that the Galileans welcomed him why? Because they had been in Jerusalem at the feast and seen all that, they, that he had done. When John says that he knew all people, he is specifically saying that Jesus knew that those in Jerusalem at the Passover feast were believing in him purely because of the signs that he was performing. He understood the surface level of their faith. 
And throughout this section from chapter 2, verse 1, through the end of chapter 4, people are misunderstanding Jesus or believing in him only because of the signs that he did. In Jerusalem and now here in Galilee, the faith of the people is primarily grounded on the signs that Jesus performed. And so when he arrives, what do they want? They want to see more. They want more signs. And in the middle of verse 46, we meet an example of this kind of faith found in a royal official, probably from Herod's court. And he begins to show us some stages of faith. I don't think these are the, the three stages of faith, but there are three stages of faith that we find in this individual. And the first stage is seeking signs and wonders from Jesus. Stage one of faith, seeking signs and wonders from Jesus. Now, we're going to dissect this man's faith. <laughs> but in doing so, I, we should be careful to not miss the desperate situation that he was in. He traveled all the way from Capernaum, maybe 20 miles, to Galilee to find Jesus. Why? Because his son was sick. Verse 47 furthermore states that his son was not just sick, he was near to death. Maybe you've experienced that. You've experienced someone you love being sick and close to death and felt the desperation of that situation. Maybe you've had a child suffering from an illness and fear and helplessness in a moment just overwhelmed you. In this man's desperation and fear and his weakness, he heard about Jesus' miraculous power and the fact that he had come back to Galilee and so he went looking for Jesus for help. He went asking for a miracle, believing that Jesus could do it. Desperate situations often drive people to Jesus. Parents around the world have called out to God because of their sick children. On Wednesday evening here in our city, there are a lot of people who rarely pray who were asking God to protect them from the storms that were coming through. They were not unlike Martin Luther. You remember he was caught in a thunderstorm, and what did he cry out? He said, save me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. I wonder if someone said that on Wednesday night. <laughs> Fear can drive us to the one that we have heard, even just cursorily, we've heard that he has power and compassion and can help us. And God, God is often so kind, isn't he? That he hears the prayers of people and he uses moments of crises and the deliverance that, that comes out of them to draw people to himself. That often happens. But we should also recognize, is that there are those, recognize that there are those who cry out for help that don't get the answer that they're looking for. And the apparent silence of God causes whatever faith they had to, to falter. I don't have an answer for that. I know that God's ways are mysterious and it's difficult to know why he sometimes acts and why he doesn't act. Even here, Jesus' words are difficult, aren't they? Let's not sugarcoat them. In the face of this father's pleading for the life of his child, Jesus looks at the crowd as a whole and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. A man with a sick son who is dying, who has asked for help, that's what Jesus says to him. You can almost hear Jesus sigh before he says it. Oh, unless you guys see signs and wonders, you won't believe. I think that's the tone. Jesus feels rude. He feels unfeeling. He doesn't appear to be moved by this man's situation, but rather he's frustrated by the way that this, man, this man's faith exemplifies the kind of faith that is only looking for signs and wonders. And he's kind of tired of it. 
but wait a minute, didn't John write this gospel? John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he, he recorded all these signs. Signs, he says, why? So that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might find life in his name. Isn't John giving us signs that Jesus did so that we would believe in Jesus? Isn't the resurrection that we celebrate today a sign that leads us to faith in Christ? Yes, Yes, of course it is. God uses signs and wonders to ignite faith in our hearts. He helps us to see his love and his power in the miracles that are recorded in the scriptures, including the resurrection of Jesus. But, but it is as if he is showing us that they are a means of introducing faith to people and inviting them into deeper belief. Immediately before those verses in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, about John has recorded these signs so that we believe. Right before that is the account of Thomas doubting the resurrection. He doubts it because he says he won't believe until he can visibly see the scars of Jesus. And when Jesus provides the sign that Thomas was asking for, Thomas believes. But Jesus responds to Thomas's announcement of faith with another surprising rebuke. John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Jesus doesn't seem very impressed with Thomas's response, does he? Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What's the point of all this? I think the point seems to be that while faith is sparked by signs and wonders, true faith is not sustained by them. A faith that is, faith is sparked by signs and wonders, but true faith is not sustained by signs and wonders. A faith that always needs signs and wonders is not a mature faith. It's not, it, it may in fact not be genuine faith. Think about, think about a romantic relationship where one person always needs some sort of grand gesture in order to believe that they are loved unless they're on the receiving end of a large gift or some flashy display of affection, they doubt the care of the other person. I think we would look at that and say, that's immature love. Life experience teaches us that as a couple grows in love, it's not grand gestures, it's small acts of faithfulness over decades that reveals the depth of their love. And so too with faith. We find that the everyday strength for the Christian, life, for the Christian walk in the faithfulness of Jesus to us in small and less flashy areas of our lives. Think on this with me. Could that be, could that be why signs and wonders are often found in the scriptures as the gospel arrives in an area, but then not, are not as prevalent once the gospel takes root in an area? And could it be that the desire for external signs to continue routinely is, is the attitude that Jesus is rebuking here in John chapter 4. Have you ever heard that a lack of miraculous signs and wonders in your life or in your church reveals a lack of faith in you as a person or you as a ministry? What if the opposite is true? What if the deeper our faith grows, the less we need such overt displays of God's power to trust in him? What if mature faith finds God in every atom of life such that seemingly atomic displays of power are actually not really necessary because we know who he is and we believe that he is with us even when he doesn't show up in big and flashy ways? 
Today we're remembering the resurrection of Jesus, the greatest sign of his power and of his deity. But as we consider this sign, we are compelled not to look at the empty tomb, but to look at the living Savior that emerged from it and who now walks with us in the everyday struggles and joys of our very ordinary lives. A faith that is maturing allows the signs of the scriptures and even the signs within our humdrum existence to point us to the Savior. He is the miracle that we believe in. He is the sign that we are ultimately seeking. Well, I think this man's faith has a growth spurt in response to the rebuke of Jesus. And he helps us to see a second stage of growing faith. The first is sort of that seeking of signs and wonders from Jesus. The second stage is taking Jesus at his word. Taking Jesus at his word. Did you notice that this guy didn't get what he wanted? Twice, the text indicates that he said to Jesus, come to my house and heal my son. But Jesus presses him to exercise faith in a way that was more difficult and that we could say maybe less showy. Jesus sees the man's seed of faith and he pours life-giving water on it by saying to him, not I'll come with you, but go, your son will live. Of course, I think the official could have pushed back a third time. He could have said, no, you have to come with me if my son's going to live. But by God's grace, this man's faith began to push through the dirt with new life and send out roots into the ground. We're told that he believed the words that Jesus spoke. He took Jesus at his word, trusting that even from this great distance, Jesus could heal his son. As I was thinking about this, I was wondering, maybe it took more faith for this man than our modern minds can fathom to actually go. Because whether through the internet or our phones, we, we each hold some measure of power that enables us to have an effect on something or to contact someone who is a great distance away. But there was no such technology at this time when you think about it. And the thought that Jesus could perform this miracle at all, let alone at such a great distance, would have been extremely difficult for this man to believe. But by God's grace, he does. The rebuke and the challenge from Jesus matured this man's faith. Think, think about those two things. Think about how Jesus grows this man's faith. How does he grow his faith? He does it first by rebuking him. This is so counterintuitive to the way that we approach faith, especially uh, in someone who is, uh, especially in someone who is seeking after Jesus. But could it be that encouraging a signs and wonders based faith or a Jesus can give me what I want kind of faith actually keeps people from genuine faith? If you've ever heard the testimony of our friend Sean Martin, I'm always struck when he tells it about a friend of his who was witnessing to him, who at one point said, I don't think you're ready to become a Christian. Sean had been asking lots of questions and attending services, and this guy said, I don't think you really understand what it means for you to follow Christ. And he told him as much. And that difficult conversation caused Sean to question just exactly what he was trusting in. And could it be that pressing people on the genuineness of their faith will not cause them to turn away, as we're so fearful it might, but actually might drive them deeper into what true belief is? Well, as Jesus seeks to grow this man's faith, he first rebukes him, but then he meets his need in a way other than how this man desired. 
Uh, he, he doesn't do what the man expects. I think sometimes God grows our faith by meeting our needs, but not in the way that we expect. He provides for our health or our finances or our family or our appointment or countless, uh, our, or countless other way, things in a way other than what we expect. This should really actually come as no surprise to us because he provides for our salvation in a way that we would never expect, doesn't he? The whole gospel story is unexpected. The idea that God would save his people by sending his son to live a life of perfect righteousness and then die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins is not what we would expect. And the surprise of the resurrection is just one more astonishing brushstroke in the masterpiece of redemption. We would have thought that there was something that we had to do, some good work that we needed to perform, or some sin that we needed to avoid. But the gospel message calls us to take Jesus at his word. The word that says God loved the world in this way, the way of sending his son so that whoever would believe in him would not die, but would have eternal life. So our friend's faith is growing, and we see that he goes on his way in verse 50. The timeline of the story indicates that this was a two-day journey for the man, which means that he had to spend the night somewhere. Can you imagine what a difficult night of sleep that would have been? I'm sure he went back and forth between belief and doubt the whole night. I don't know how much he even slept at all, but I think in the moments of faith that he did have, maybe he, I don't know, maybe he wrote a song like this. "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" just to take him at his word. That's what he says he does, right? Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. And then maybe the chorus, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. I think for this man and for each of us, there's always room for us to trust him more, to keep taking him at his word. And so we find, I think, a third stage of belief for faith, and it's seen in repenting, believing, and giving up ourselves to Jesus. The third stage that we see is repenting, believing, and giving up ourselves to Jesus. Does that sound familiar? I stole it from our church covenant, which reads, having as we trust been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him. And it's divine grace that brings us to the place of repenting and believing and giving ourselves up to Jesus. That's what faith is. It involves a turning. It involves a believing. And it involves a giving up of ourselves. And that divine grace comes to this man. We see him the next day, he's heading to his house, and as he's on the way, his servants come and they find him to report that his son is recovering. And now, again, not to be too harsh on this guy, (laughs) but I think it's a little telling that he doesn't hear about his son's healing and say, it was Jesus. What does he say? What time? (laughs) What time did it happen? He's looking for more evidence that this miracle was truly performed performed by Jesus. So, and so he asks about the hour, and the servants say, well, it was the seventh hour. That's, that's when the fever left him. And the man knew then that that's, what Jesus, that's when Jesus had announced to him, your son will live. And so he believed along with the entire household. Now, that detail about the time of the boy's healing could be there as much 
for us as for him. Because we are all a little bit skeptical, right? But the text affirms that this boy lived. Why? Because Jesus had willed it to be so the day prior all the way in Cana. And God in his grace fills the gospel accounts with these kinds of details. We could just think about the details in the story of the resurrection, couldn't we? Details that serve to answer all of our objections to the truth of what actually happened. And in that, we're reminded that our faith is not a blind faith. It is rooted in historically verifiable events. Yes, there is a moment where we must trust in Christ, but it's not a blind leap into the dark. It's more like a wide-eyed step onto a well-lit path. We can also be encouraged that when it comes to faith, what's most important is not so much the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. I can be critical of this man's faith because I know that's how my faith often is. But ultimately, it doesn't matter how strong my faith is. It matters who I'm trusting in. To borrow the old navigator's illustration, you can have a lot of faith in thin ice that it's going to hold your weight when you walk across it. Or you can have a small and struggling faith in very thick ice covering a lake. In the end, what's most important is the object of the faith because the thin ice isn't going to hold you no matter how much you believe in it. But even if your faith is struggling, that thick ice is going to hold you. And Jesus is thick ice. And this man puts his growing faith into Jesus, and Jesus is able to hold all of his hopes and all of his doubts. I think the depth of this man's faith is seen in part in the fact that his entire household also believed. As the leader of his wife and children and servants, this man took the opportunity to point each of these individuals to Jesus, much in the same way that the Samaritan woman called the entire city to come and to see Jesus. And those around him believed, not because Jesus came to the house, because Jesus didn't come to the house, but they believed because of the testimony of this man and who truly believed the goodness and the salvation of Jesus. And his concern shifted. His concern moved from the physical life that Jesus could give to his sick son to the eternal life that he could give to his entire household. And that's mature faith. It moves from the sign that Jesus can give us to the life that he offers in Christ. I think if we wanted to simplify all this, which maybe you're saying, well, why didn't you do that in the first place? Uh, We could just talk about two kinds of faith. We could talk about sign faith, and we could talk about word faith. Sign faith or word faith? Are we believing in the signs that Jesus does or in the words that he speaks? And here, we see that the man took Jesus at his word, And then the household believed the word as it was relayed to them by this man. Bruce Milne gives us a nice summary. This is what he writes in his commentary. Miraculous signs and miraculous answers to prayer, such as modeled here, may have a certain value as a starting point, making us aware of God's reality. But they remain sterile unless they lead on to a concern for the Christ to whom they point and whose glory they signify. Beyond the miracles, we seek the Lord who works them. It is in obeying his commands and trusting his promises that true faith is expressed. Now we have ceased to dictate the terms of our relationship. We exist for him, not he for us. Now we believe. This second sign is is part of at least seven that John gives us in the gospel. And depending on how you count them, the resurrection could be the seventh sign, could be the eighth sign, a final sign that surpasses the other seven. 
And as we gather today, we, we certainly gather to remember that sign, to remember a historical event. We gather to affirm that at a particular time, in a particular place, Jesus truly rose from the dead. However, in the end, Easter is not so much the celebration of an event, is it? It's the celebration of a person. The cross and the empty tomb are the symbols of this season, but they all point to Jesus. Jesus, the one who conquers death by death and by resurrection. And he meets each of us, skeptics, people who are solid in our faith, people who are struggling, and through his works and his words, he invites us to find life in him. But who is Jesus? Can he really do all of these things that he promises? Well, we've been in John for four chapters, and you remember one of John's big questions is, who is Jesus? So let me remind you of what we've seen just up to this point. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the word of God who has come into his world to reveal the glory and the grace of God so that all who believe in him can be called God's children. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He's the greatest rabbi. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. And he's the Son of Man who alone deserves glory. Jesus is the true temple who alone can purify us. Jesus is the bridegroom who provides the never-ending feast. Jesus possesses the authority to speak divine truth and to tell us how we can meet with God. He is the one who can cause us to be born again. He is superior to all such that we must always be decreasing so that he can increase. He is the living water who can satisfy our souls and he is the savior of the world. And today we remember that he is risen. Middle of the sermon, I didn't know if you guys would get it. Not bad. He is risen. He's, he, he is the resurrection and the life. Not only could he give life to this official's dying son, but he can give eternal resurrection life to all who will repent and give up themselves to him. So today, may the works and the words of Jesus here in John 4 and in the resurrection accounts mature our faith so that we might find life in him. Sarah Elizabeth and Mark and Ian are going to come now and we're going to worship together. And so I want to invite you to stand and we're going to ask this question, is he worthy? And I hope that in seeing who Jesus is in John 1 through 4, seeing who he is in this passage, seeing who he is in the miracle of the resurrection that we would all say uh, with great exuberance that yes, he is, he is worthy of all our praise and worship. So let's stand together. And we'll sing this song, and then I'll close this with the benediction.